0: Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 21, chapter 21 of Numbers today, returning to our studies through this book. If you, uh, as we did today, have ever sung Psalm 135 in worship and wondered, who are mighty Sihon, Og of Bashan, today you're going to find out. Uh, That's in Numbers chapter 21. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter today, 35 verses. You can find that on page 129 of our CART Bibles. Uh, And before we read this text together, let's go to the Lord and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. O gracious God and King of all the earth, we thank you for your word and your work among your people we thank you that this book has to teach us not only of your works in days of old, but also your continued work with us. We thank you for the picture that we see here, pointing us even to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have raised up so that others might look and believe in him and have life. Help us to see him today. Help us to believe in him uh, and fit us uh, for the fight of faith that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 21, beginning in the first verse. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord obeyed the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites. They devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of that place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And the people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth. They set out from Oboth and camped at Ayah Abarim in the wilderness that's opposite Moab toward the sunrise. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Wherefore, it is said in the book of the Wars of the Lord, Waheb and Sufa, in the valleys of the Arnon, and the slope of the valleys that extends to the seat of Ar and leans to the border of Moab. And from there they continued to beer, that is, the well of which the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that the princes dug, that the nobles of the peoples delved with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness they went on to Matinah, and from Matinah to Nahaliel, and from Nahaliel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, King of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword. And took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites and Heshbon and in all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand, as far as the Arnon. Therefore, the ballad singers say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sihon be established, for fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the city of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab, you were undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, Sihon. So we overthrew them. Heshbon, as far as Dibbon, perished, and we laid waste as far as Nopha, fire spread as far as Medeba. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. And Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him. For I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, I'm certain that at some point you've heard that old adage, uh, the one that tries to encourage us that it's not so much the destination that matters in life as it is the journey that you're on. Uh, Well, try telling that to uh, Erwin Kreutz. Uh, Erwin Kreutz uh, was a brewery worker from West Germany uh, who in 1977 spent his life savings attempting to spend his 50th birthday with a month-long celebration holiday to San Francisco. Uh, Kreutz uh, had never traveled internationally. He really had not been much out of Bavaria, and when the plane from Frankfurt, Germany, stopped down to refuel in Bangor, Maine, Kreutz deplaned, and he headed to a local hotel. Uh, From there, a bit jet-lagged and needing something to eat, he, uh, he began to tour the city. He looked in vain for that famous bridge. He found a few Chinese restaurants, and uh, having seen Chinese restaurants and uh, knowing that San Francisco was fabled for its Chinatown, convinced himself that he must be somewhere in a suburb just outside the Golden Gate City. He did not realize where he actually was until a taxi driver refused to drive him the 4,000 miles it would take to see the sights of downtown San Francisco. Uh, eventually, Kreutz got to where he meant to be going to. But the point is that Bangor is an awful long way from San Francisco. Uh, there's a world of difference between Maine and California. Now, praise the Lord, by the time we get to the end of chapter 21, God's people are finally making their way to the place that they have been meaning to get to. Their destination is just over the Jordan River. They're almost there. By the end of this chapter, Israel has victories under their belt. They have cities in their possession. The journey that they've been on for 40 years is all but finished. But there are indications in this text. uh, There's a sign or two that we see here, details letting us know that uh, even before they reach their destination, God's people are already where they ought to be. Not geographically, perhaps, but spiritually. Spiritually, there has been a change of scenery as we turn from chapter 20 to chapter 21. Spiritually, there are landmarks letting us know that we're moving in the right direction. And quite frankly, we, we must have been for quite some time. The faith of the Israelites in chapter 21 is growing stronger. Their doubts, although not completely eradicated, are shrinking smaller. Through all their wilderness journeys, we can find that the Lord has been faithfully leading his people closer to himself. And whether the people make it into the land or whether they remain outside of it, that is where the Lord has been leading them all along through this journey. Their destination, of course, was Canaan, but the greater destination was closer in faith to the God who was saving them. Uh, Today, I want to consider together how it is that the Lord is leading his people to himself and there are three things I want you to see first I want you to see in this text that the Lord brings his people new victories secondly uh, we find that the Lord bears with his people through old defeats thirdly we find that through new victories and old defeats the Lord always gives his people a way forward those are our three points new victories old defeats and a way forward Now, this chapter begins with some of these new victories. Victories specifically over the Canaanites in a place called Hormah, and then it ends with other victories over those uh, men that we sang about earlier, mighty Sihon Og of Bashan. These were military victories. They were signs of better things to come, because little by little, battle by battle, city by city, God is giving his people possession of the land that he swore to them ages ago. We could trace it all the way back to Abraham. We could go back to God's promise in Genesis 15. He said he would take his nation Israel and he would hide them in the safety of slavery in Egypt, of all places. He would keep them there until the time was right for judgment against the Amorites. And now the time for that judgment has come. Now by the strength of the Lord, his people are beginning to serve as a a kind of cleansing agent. Among the nations of the earth, verse 3 tells us the Lord gave over the Canaanites, and Israel devoted them and their cities to destruction. You know as well as I do that that kind of language makes many people today who read the Old Testament a bit uncomfortable. One pastor said Numbers chapter 21 is the kind of Old Testament story that makes people dislike the Old Testament. And so it is. Modern readers of the Old Testament in places like this, uh, we get tripped up. We get nervous when we realize not only is there a God who can pass judgment on the nations, but there's a God that when he passes judgment on the nations is perfectly just and righteous to do so. But unfortunately, far too often when we encounter texts like this, we spend a lot of our time making excuses, making apologies for God to those who are offended by his godhood. What if, uh, at least just for today, instead of making apologies, we simply let the Lord of the universe be the Lord of the universe? And what if, instead of making apologies, we simply allow these victories to be exactly what these victories are meant to be, and that is signs that God is working His power through a very weak people? That's what we find here. Think about it, isn't it jarring when we turn to Numbers chapter 21 and we see at the first three verses this crushing victory for the nation is beginning to look like the perpetual underdog. Up until now, it seems like they haven't gotten anything right. And then verse 3, they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of that place was called Hormah. As your footnote helpfully points out, Horma means Destruction. It comes from the language of divine judgment. The word in the Hebrew is harem. That's the kind of warfare God sent his people to do in the land of Canaan. It was warfare that completely eradicated the other peoples of the earth and did so as an act of divine judgment. And so when they came in and they were attacked in Arad, in Kadesh, they left the burning pile of rubble that was behind them with the name called Hormah. Not as a sign that they had done something wonderful, but the Lord had done something wonderful through them. Actually, though, uh, we've been here before. Geographically, we have been here before in the story of Numbers. Horma showed up back in chapter 14. It was after the spies brought their bad report, and the Lord sentenced the entire nation to 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Then the Lord had said no at that time to Canaan, and when the Lord said no to Canaan, there was a group of Israelites who said yes. There was a group of instigators who said that with the Lord or without him, we will go up into the land of Canaan, and we will take it for ourselves by our own strength. We are ready to go up and receive what the Lord is going to give to us. And Moses warned them, the Lord is not with you. Do not go up, but they went up anyway. It was Israel's first attempt at armed warfare outside of Egypt. Verse 45 of chapter 14 gives us the result. It says, Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. We've been here before. It's not a coincidence that in Numbers chapter 21, it's not a random stroke of luck, that Israel emerges triumphant in the very same vicinity where before there was defeat. It's not a surprise because this time when Israel was oppressed, they turned to the Lord. It says they vowed a vow to the Lord, and it was the Lord who gave them victory where they had been defeated. It was the Lord who gave them blessing where they previously had been cursed. He is showing his strength through their weakness. The same is true after the people cross over the Arnon River. The Arnon is a river, by the way, the Arnon and the Jabbok. You can uh, look it up in your your, uh, maps in the back of your Bible later. Uh, helpful to have a sort of a layout of the the land in your mind. But after they cross the Arnon River, after they enter into the land opposite the Jordan, verse 21 says that Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites. He sent him with a delegation asking for peaceful passage. Let us go through your land. We won't take your food. We won't take your water. We won't uh, won't, uh, go anywhere off of the highway. We just want to go through. And instead, verse 23 says that Sihon gathered all his people. And he went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Actually, that sounds familiar too. In the previous chapter, chapter 20, it mirrors the approach that Israel made to Edom and their way up into Canaan. There they sent a delegation asking for peaceful passage, and there there was an armed uh, force that came out against them. Here the result is different. The outcome is different because God is at work. You can find the details in Deuteronomy chapter 3, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30, it recounts the same history, and there Moses tells the people what was going on behind the scenes. He says, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit. And he made his heart obstinate, so that he might give him into your hand, as he is at this day. The point is, God is working a victory for his people. He's working a victory that they could never work for themselves. He's revealing his glory. He's showing his strength by saving his nation in ways that make them grow in confidence in what the Lord is capable of. One more example from our text. When in verse uh, 32 it tells us that Moses sent spies to spy out Jazer, we brace for impact all over again. We know how this goes, typically. We know the kind of disaster that ensues when Israelite spies spy out the land that lies before them. But this time, it's different. This time, there is another Israelite victory. And together, there is a word of confidence from God to his people. Look at verse 34. Verse 34. The Lord said to Moses, but do not fear him. For I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. The message is clear. It's the Lord himself who is working victories for his people. God is displaying his power through a very weak nation. We could put it another way. All of these military victories, they're they're not a sign of the faithfulness of Israel. Rather, they are a sign of the faithfulness of Israel's God. They are glimpses of glory. and They are designed to lead Israel to greater dependence upon what God alone can do. Think about it. What has really changed substantially as we flip from the end of chapter 20 to the beginning of chapter 1. What has really changed aside from a new generation of Israelites? And we'll come to look in just a minute at these grumblers who are still grumbling about the provisions in the wilderness. What has really changed? What lessons has Israel learned after 40 years of wandering, after the death of nearly all that first generation? Have they learned how strong and capable they are now in the wilderness? Have they learned that if they just work together, they they can secure a place and a future for themselves? Have they learned a few spiritual tricks that they can uh, keep up their sleeve and then pull out at just the right time to make God jump through the hoops that they have designed for God to jump through? Or have they finally begun to learn just how foolish it is to put their confidence in themselves? Have they finally learned to stop trusting their own evaluations of things? Have they finally learned to trust in what the Lord has promised instead of what they can comprehend? Have they finally begun to learn the lesson that Paul had to learn, that the strength of God is made perfect in the weakness of his people? That's the point of these victories. They're putting God's strength on full display through this people who have been tempted over and over and over again to trust in themselves. And the same is true for you, dear believer. The Lord is is not leading his church today into crusades on foreign battlefields. He's not leading us to, to claim geographical space as physical kingdoms, The New Testament tells us explicitly that in the church of Jesus Christ, our battle is not primarily against flesh and blood. The weapons of our warfare are not slings and arrows and uh, and swords and spears. Nevertheless, the Lord does lead us into warfare, He does lead us into battle. He calls us to spiritual violence against the enemies of our souls. Colossians says we must put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What is earthly in us? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, greed. Go to war against these things, says the Scriptures. Jesus says the same. He says, die to yourself. He says, deny yourself. He says, take up your cross every day and follow me. But have you ever tried to do that in your own strength? I'll admit that it's pretty easy to get excited about a pep talk. Right? A sort of a sort of halftime here we go. Let's get back out there and, and win one. Right? It's, a, it's easy to hear a sermon and go out of church feeling like now I'm resolved to change. And I know it's easy to do that because it's easy to preach a sermon and go out of church and feel like now I'm resolved. To change, finally I can do it. It's easy to get this bootstrap mentality. We can grit our teeth, we can change our lives by the sweat of our own brow, but then again it's not very effective. It's not very effective because we are engaged in a warfare that is too big for us. Paul says the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh. Paul himself says he has the desire to do what is good, but not the ability to carry it out. And in your own power, neither do you. That's why the victories of Numbers chapter 21 are so significant. They come to God's people in the same places that defeat once stared them down. They come in the shape of enemies larger than God's people themselves. They come with this unmistakable message that the Lord is able to do what man is not able to do for himself. Let me tell you that if you walk with the Lord long enough, you will find that the Lord works those same sorts of victories into your life as well. If you don't believe me, ask another Christian who's been down the road a bit further than you have. Sins you never thought you'd be able to overcome. Bitterness, you you never thought you'd be able to leave behind. Desires you never thought you would be free from. But the Lord in his mercy can do what we cannot. He gives victories to his people. He gives new victories to his people to put his power on display in our lives. Here's our first point. The Lord is leading us to himself, and he does that in part by giving us new victories. Our second and much shorter point uh, is that the Lord also bears with us through our same old defeats. Uh, Take a look at verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We have seen it so often we can just stop there. We already know how this story goes. We already know the outcome. We know that God's people again have grown tired of God's provision and their groaning bellies become grumbling lips. And they speak against what the Lord has given to them. And in response, the Lord sends a judgment, a plague upon his people. This time, the plague is a little different. It comes in the form of snakes. Here in the text where it says fiery serpents, that probably means venomous snakes. Uh, perhaps because the the inflammation felt like a burning fire. I don't know. We, We have all sorts of ideas. It's clear that when they bit people, people died. These are venomous snakes. The Lord sends a plague of fiery serpents among his people. And as Dennis Gold points out, he says, this is a striking resemblance to the kind of natural wonders that the Lord worked against those oppressors down there in Egypt. It seems to be a sign that if the people really want to be in Egypt so badly, well, then God will bring a little bit of Egypt to them. And now by the time we've seen this grumbling, for the umpteenth time in Numbers and Exodus, well, that shocked reaction that initially said, oh, no, how could they? Well, that sort of fizzles by this time. Now we look at this and we say, well, of course they did. Of course they did. It's not that we become hard-hearted. It's not that we expect the worst out of Israel. It's just that we've seen it too often to be surprised by this point. We've seen it far too often in their stories, and quite frankly, we've seen it far too often in our own lives. You are probably aware that there are Christian traditions that make a big deal out of what some call living the victorious Christian life. It goes by several other names. Sometimes it's called the higher life. Sometimes it's called the abundant life. It's the teaching that says that, you know, if we will only get far enough out of God's way, then our Christian life will be marked by spiritual victory after spiritual victory after spiritual victory, unabated from here to eternity. It's a steady uphill climb with never a, a slight drop in ascent as we go. Advance is expected in the abundant life. Setbacks are abnormal. And if the Christian life feels like an uphill climb, you're probably doing it wrong. That's the teaching. It offers an attractive sales pitch. It presents a a form of Christianity that is supposedly marked by complete freedom freedom from trouble and freedom from sin and freedom from strife and especially freedom from anxiety. And if any of those things ever show up in your life, the answer must be that you need further deliverance. You need a new spiritual surrender. Let go and let God is the watchword of this theology. If it doesn't work the first time, maybe it's become because you didn't let go hard enough. So, so maybe try again. Next time, maybe try to surrender a little bit more. Maybe try letting go a little bit. So there are any number of deliverance ministries. There are any number of prescripted prayers for spiritual power. There are any number of hucksters on internet television telling limping Christians to simply claim their victory with a word of faith. And if they do, it will come to them. If your faith is strong enough, victory is assured because the Christian walk is meant to be smooth and easy. Well, as I said, it it offers an attractive sales pitch. The problem is that it's make-believe. This week's obligatory reference to the book of Hebrews comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. We read there, uh, the apostle writing that book says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Whatever else that text is teaching us, and it's teaching us several things, whatever else that text is teaching us, it is that the Christian life is a struggle against sin. It's the kind of thing that requires resistance. It's not an easy downhill slide. It's not a walk through sunny meadows full of butterflies. It is a struggle, and it's designed that way. The rest of the New Testament calls it a race that you have to endure. It calls it a battle you have to be engaged in. It is an uphill climb that Christ our Savior climbed before us. By the grace of God, through that uphill battle, battle after battle, some of which we win and some of which we lose, the Lord is using these things to conform us more to the image of our Savior. Now what am I getting at here in numbers? The, the point is not that this sinful grumbling in numbers 21 is excusable. But the point is that it's explainable. We know where it comes from. We know how it works. We don't need to be surprised when we find ourselves facing the same kinds of temptations that these people faced in the wilderness. It comes down to the fact that we share the same weakness. We share the same sinful flesh that they had. And yes, even after being filled with the Holy Spirit, that sinful flesh continues that continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit lusting against the flesh. It is the same spiritual struggle that all God's people must Endure. So we say, praise the Lord that he does bring us from time to time new victories. Praise the Lord because far too often we fall into the same old defeats. But whether through victory or defeat, our Lord always gives us a way forward. There's our third point. And here we come to what one commentator called the most well-known portion in the entire book of Numbers. It is more famous than chapter 22, where we will see the Lord giving his word through the mouth of a donkey. Verse 7 says that when the people recognized their sin, they cried out for mercy. That, by the way, is a step that has been lacking for far too much of Israel's dealings with God in the wilderness. They recognized their sin. They cried out for mercy. But when they did, it says they cried out to Moses, and Moses cried to the Lord. And when Moses cried to the Lord, the Lord gave them an answer. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. That's kind of strange when you think about it. It's so strange, in fact, that all the, the normal uh, cast of critical characters, they, they waste all of their academic articles trying to convince the world of academia that this portion of numbers, well, it must have been slipped in there by somebody later. This, this doesn't fit the flow of the narrative. They say this doesn't sound like the God of the Old Testament who forbids making of graven images the god who deals with his people in, in smoke and sacrifice, but this is, it's weird, and it's bloodless, and it feels almost borderline superstitious. And then they'll back up that argument by saying, you know, as, as archaeologists dig in archaeological sites all over the known ancient world, they find amulets, and they find charms in the shape of, uh, the shape of snakes. Uh, things that most pagan tribes and almost all religions around the world where that sort of thing is dangerous, almost all of them have some sort of totem that they wear or display in order to keep snake bites from happening, in order to keep their people safe. And so here we go, here's another superstitious thing, and it's been, it's been uh, tucked in at the last moment. It, it shouldn't really be there. Now the thing is, though, verse 8 doesn't say that that this serpent is going to ward off snake bites. That's the way those amulets were supposed to work, you know. You wear the snake so that you won't get bitten by a snake. That's explicitly not what the Lord is doing here. In fact, it's worth mentioning that when the Lord commands his people to make this metal serpent, he is specifically not doing the one thing they have asked him to do. Verse 7. They said, pray to the Lord that he take away these serpents from us. He could have. that's, That's the way it happened down there in Egypt, you know. Exodus chapter 10, verses 16 to 19. There was another plague. There was a a natural plague, a judgment that the Lord brought. Exodus chapter 10, verses 16 to 19. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Please, only this once. Plead with the Lord your God to remove this death from me. Get rid of this plague. So? Moses went out from Pharaoh. He pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. And verse 19 says not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. The Lord could have done that. He'd done it before. But when we turn to Numbers chapter 21, we do not read that the people cried out to the Lord, and the Lord said, all right, all the snakes are they're just going to disappear. Instead, the people said, Moses, pray to the Lord that he take these snakes away from us. And the Lord says to Moses, hey, let's give him another snake. Not a snake that's going to drive away the other ones. Not a snake that's going to keep them from being bit, quite frankly. But a snake that will save them when they feel the sting of their sin. And when they look in faith to the salvation that only I can work for them. So it was, verse 9. Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And if you read that, and you wonder, what in the world the Lord is doing with this bronze serpent? What is he really giving to his people? The answer is, he's giving them something far better than he ever gave to Pharaoh. Sure, Exodus chapter 10 says that when Pharaoh cried out, God removed the locusts. Verse 19, not a single locust was left in the whole country of Egypt. They were gone, completely eradicated, but Pharaoh's unbelief was never extinguished. So Exodus chapter 10 verse 20, immediately after the locusts are gone, says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let Israel go. Actually, it's the pattern that we've seen several times with these plagues in Egypt. It repeated, chapter 9, but when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. See, the Lord knows who he's dealing with. He knows the way our sinful hearts work. He knows that as soon as we are out of imminent danger, we will often return to the very same mistakes that led us into danger in the first place. So the drunkard wakes up in the morning with a screaming headache and a resolve never to drink another drop. But as soon as that hangover is gone, it's right back to the bottle. Yeah, the Lord could have removed the snakes as the people asked. Instead, he gave them something better. Instead, he gave them an opportunity to look to the Lord who was able to save them even when their sin had gotten the better of them even when they fell into the same old patterns and the same old temptations all over again, he gave them something better. You see, there wasn't any magic or superstition in this statue of a serpent. But there was power for salvation in the God who had given it. And so the Lord used this very image of their sin, the very embodiment of their judgment, he used it as a lens through which his people could look to him in faith and be saved. And this is where we get to why this text is so famous. That is because Jesus uses this serpent in the wilderness as a teaching tool during that midnight conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It is the prelude to the most famous verse in all of Scripture, John 3:16, but John chapter three, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says this, "As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life." And so here we are, stricken with our sin. Here we are dying in our deep-seated depravity. Here we are dying in our failure to live up to all that the Lord has called us to be and to do in His perfect law. Here we are plagued with spiritual and eternal curse brought about by our rebellion against the Lord. And at the very first twinge of conviction of sin, we cry out, Oh Lord, take it away. Just get rid of it. Have you ever prayed that? Lord, I would be better if you would just get rid of this desire that I can't seem to shake. Things would be okay if you would just remove it. Won't you just get rid of this? We pray to the Lord almost in the words of Pharaoh, forgive my sin, remove this death from me, and the Lord says, I'll give you something better. P.J. Wilson says that the cure for snakes Is a snake. The cure for human life is one man's life. The cure for death is death. Nothing else will do. So when we cry out for forgiveness, the Lord doesn't make his people sinless. Not yet. When we ask the Lord for mercy, he doesn't make us immortal. Not yet. Instead, he sends his son. He sent his son, and according to Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The message of Numbers is pointing to the truth of the gospel, that the Father sent the Son to bear the sin that we have committed. He sent the Son to take the judgment that we deserve. He sent the Son to pay the price that we cannot. And he did it so that when we look to him in faith, we receive an eternal victory that we could never work for ourselves. He did it so that we can believe in Him and live. That's the way forward that the Lord has provided. He calls us to fix our eyes in faith on the Redeemer and the Savior that He has sent. And actually, for all of our Christian lives, we never get very far away from that principle at all. Think just for a moment the way the rest of this chapter plays out. The Lord leads his people uh, to a well. He says, gather the people that I may give them water. And then they sing a song, and it's all about the the leaders of the people digging a well. They say, wait a minute. Did Did the Lord give the people water, or did they have to dig for it? We keep on going, and the Lord says to Moses, I have given Og, king of Bashan, into your hand. And then it says the people defeated him hold on a minute, did the Lord give him over or did the people defeat him? Was it a victory of the Lord or did they have to struggle? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. This is the principle, not just of the beginning of our Christian lives, but of all of our Christian lives. They dug in faith. They fought by faith. They believed what the Lord said He would provide, and then they engaged in the struggle to align their lives with that reality, and it was a struggle. So the whole Christian life is meant to be a fight of faith. It is an intentional cycle of looking again and again at our Savior every time we see our sin. Our whole walk with God is a journey by faith in the salvation that only He can supply, but that He calls us to work out with fear and trembling. In fact, I think it's why these victories that God gives to His people so often take the shape of the things that are too big for us. I think it's why the Lord so wonderfully allows His people to experience the same old defeats trapped us more than once or twice or before. He does it so that we would learn at last, through battle after battle, how little we can trust ourselves and how much we can trust in Him. He does it because all along, His intention is to lead us to Himself. Please pray with me. Gracious God and King, we thank you for this emblem that you have given, this sign pointing to Jesus Christ. We pray that if there are any here who do not know him as Savior yet, that you would work faith, cause them to look and receive life. And for all of us who do know him and are trusting in him, Lord, give us strength to fight. Give us your strength, supply what we need, Help us to work out with fear and trembling this salvation that only you are working into our lives. Help us to be engaged in the struggle that you call us to. And help us to follow you joyfully as you lead us to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.